and bienvenue to Apple Royale. We are judgment on all the kings and emperors of France, from Clovis to Napoleon III. And my name is, oh, I didn't say that, and je m'appelle Ben Clark. You forgot my bit. Did I? Yeah. Where I say, and who will be selected as the creme de la creme, and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. I thought I thought my rhythm got mixed up there. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I was going, where's it going? Like, when you, like, paused for a second there, <laughs> when you said past judgment, I was like, okay, what? Can mm. I start? <laughs> then you kept going. We're not talking about the king or emperor today, um, which is probably why I got a bit tongue-tied. Because we are doing Blanca de Castilla. Blanche of Castile, as she is known in English and French. Oh, so she's known as Blanche in French. French is Blanche. Blanche. Even though when you say it, all I can think of you in your head when you're like, Blanche! Blanche. Yeah, that is one of the English pronunciations. I'm going to try to say Blanche, but I might sometimes say Blanche, and I might sometimes say Blanche. Um, I like Blanche. I'm not, I can't guarantee I'll be consistent about the pronunciation because I've Listen to the last couple episodes and I say it all three times at some point. They'll know who we mean. Yeah. She's an interesting figure. She's she's one of these people who is often like a footnote in history, even though the more I dove into her, the more I was like, oh no, she's a really important yeah. part of this She ain't period. no footnote. She's in the main paragraph. Yeah. But that being said, I couldn't find much stuff about her. Looking, like, online and, like, other podcasts and, like, YouTube videos, there wasn't much. Mystery. So we're kind of, we're kind of breaking, breaking some new ground here a little bit. Woo! And I think she only has one biography that was written in the 21st century. Oh, wow. In, in English. So, yeah. Let's do an etymology out the gate. Yes. So the name Blanche directly translates to French as the word for white. Blanc. I knew that. Um, in its in its feminine form, though she was born in Castile, so she would originally have been known by the name's Spanish form, Blanca, which has the same meaning. Yeah. Interestingly, though, it's not from Latin, as you might expect, because the Latin word for white is albus, not blancus. And the word blanche or blanca is actually of Germanic origin. So it's one of the, it's one of these weird remnants of the Germanic languages that's lodged itself yeah. into French and Spanish. Um, cool. Of which there are a few words, but not that many. Yeah. So the original it comes from the original Proto-Germanic word blancas, um, which doesn't just mean white; uh, it also means bright, shining, or even blinding. Um, which is a cool meaning. Yeah. And Wish my name had a cool etymology. Doesn't it? No, it just means like gift from God. That's so cool. Boring. It's not. I want a cool one, like warrior. Mine is mine is With son of the right hand. That is my name. Lisa's That's not even the left lamer. hand because wouldn't that be like evil hand back in the day? I prefer that. That would be more interesting. I know. Same here. <laughs> It'd be more fun. So we'll see how uh, Blanche, if Blanche is able to live up to her name and become a shining beacon. Of blindnessness. For a kingdom that unfortunately loses its king uh, too soon, which is why she loses has to, its light. Why she has to step in. So that being said, uh, do you want to give a little recap of uh, what we learned last episode? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, who did we do last episode? So I'll, I'll, I'll sort of guide you. I'll sort of guide you. So let's start back with, we're, we're going to be starting back in the reign of Philip Augustus again. Okay. So Philip Augustus, if you recall, yep. he destroys yep. the Ongevin Empire. Yep, yep, um, yep. Yep, and does his little uh, crusades, you know. Yep. Ushers in a bit of a golden age. It's it's good times for France. And then we have Louis VIII, which... Yeah. Do you remember some of the things he does? Exists. Oh, he did a lot of stuff before when he was prince, campaigning. Um, He did, um, um went down south. Yeah, he was a bit of a Prince Charles in that regard, where he was waiting to be king for a very long time. And eventually his father gave him more responsibility. He had a few trips to the south to do the Albigensian crusade. Oh, he had a loving marriage. Had a loving marriage, which we'll definitely get more more into. Had lots of bubs. Lots of bubs. Um, who are the, the most bubs. bubs. The most bubs. And wasn't she pregnant at the time? Or just given birth? Yes, she was pregnant at the pregnant. time of his death. Most likely. It's actually... Um, the birth date of debated. her last child is, is debated, but she was most likely heavily pregnant. Oh, and Philip really liked her. I think Philip more liked his grandchildren, uh, but yeah. we'll but get into that. Blanche. Yeah, well, she, she created his grandchildren. Yeah. So, but you know, no, not- no, 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 they- no. He he went to England because they were like, all the lords were like, hey, come on over, be our king. But then blah, 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 John died. And then they were like, actually, goodbye. Did you just call John blah, blah, blah? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, basically Louis VIII tries to invade Well, he England, was blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> and it's going really well until his enemy John dies. And then Henry III. Yeah, the Becomes the puppet king. Speaking of England, England has a lot to do with the origins of Blanche, mm-hmm. which we'll get into. So, on the fourth of March, eleven eighty-eight, two days after my birthday, two days after your birthday, <laughs> but a few hundred years before, <laughs> in the city of Palencia in mm-hmm. north central Spain. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, the Queen of People Castile gave birth to a baby girl who was named Woo! Blanche. Or Blanca, I guess. And this was the seventh of 12 times that this queen would give birth. Damn. So like mother, like daughter. Fertile myrtles. Fertile myrtles. And not a single one of her five boys would live past childhood. Oh. Um, but five of her seven daughters would oh, yay. go on to be queens. Um, wow. Either by marrying kings or by the eldest becoming queen in her own right. Cool. Um, and also marrying a king. Um, we'll get into it. <laughs> but uh, the youngest uh, the youngest child, Constance, was uh, joined a monastery, lived her best life, so she's fine as Woo. well. Um, so the queen's name was Eleanor, and she was the daughter of King Henry II of England uh, and his yeah, wife, yeah, yeah. Eleanor, Duchess of Aquitaine. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's what helped give a claim for England, right? Yes. That means Blanche of Castile is half Plantagenet, Blanche's father, King Alfonso VIII. He and his wife were, were very, very strong, influential figures. Um, Eleanor, in particular, was a very powerful queen in the image of her mother. And uh, she passed on to her daughters the idea that a strong kingdom needed a strong queen. And that they weren't, yes. just, they weren't just baby ovens. Even though having lots and lots yeah. of children is is very it turns out to be very useful. <laughs> they weren't just dolls. Um, 
She's like, that's good as well. But also, yes. And it helps that Eleanor brought a lot of her mother's Poitavin culture to into Castile, which we discussed a bit mm. in Eleanor of Aquitaine's episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Spain is is having its own little cultural golden age aside from yep. that. With We're bringing in this French influence of like troubadours, gothic art, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And sure. meanwhile, Spain is a bit influenced by Arab culture as well, which is yeah. just coming off its golden age. So it's a lovely, yummy sort of culture soup. It's what it is. <laughs> and obviously the daughter who received the most attention from King Alfonso and Queen Eleanor would have been the eldest Berengaria, mm-hmm. who was about 10-ish years older than Blanche. And in 1217, she claimed Castile for her son, Ferdinand III, after the death of her little brother, King Henry I. And because Berengaria had married her cousin, the King of Leon, she would unite both kingdoms and become Spain's Yay. most powerful ruler. Yeah. Hence why she's known today as Berengaria the Great. Woo! Nice yeah. to have a woman who's the great. Yes. Is that the first great for women that we've had? That we've had. I mean, we don't really have her. She's in Spain. Um, but... I know, but like around the time... I'm I'm around this time. She's the only one that comes to mind. Um, cool. Yeah. So Blanche was the third surviving daughter. Um, mm-hmm. However, she was the first to get married, actually. So if we rewind back to the year 1200, yeah. unlike her elder sisters, Berengaria and Uraka, uh, Blanche didn't cool. seem too likely to inherit any titles that would pass out of the kingdom if she married a foreign ruler. So she was a yeah. safe first option to marry off. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. And she was married off when her elderly grandmother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, came knocking in <laughs> her late 70s, looking for a relative to use in a marriage alliance. Because King John of England, her son, had no children of his own at the time, because Henry III wouldn't be born for another few years. So his nearest eligible female relatives were his sister Eleanor Jr.'s daughters. Eleanor comes along, she she arranges uh, to give uh, Blanche to the son of King Philip II of France, young Louis yep. the Lion, at the Treaty of Le Goulet, which we've gone into in a bit yep. of detail in our last couple of episodes. So at the time, Blanche was 12 years old, and thankfully Louis was only six months older than her. Not a huge age gap. And the only uh, record of her appearance that we have is um, Eleanor apparently complaining that she would have preferred to have taken Uraka to France because um, Blanche was the less pretty sister. Oh! <laughs> oh, we love Eleanor. Well, when she's dissing other people about their appearance. Uh, we will see you, Blanche, inherit some of this brutality from her grandmother a little mm. bit. What, brutal honesty? <laughs> yeah, she doesn't mince words either. So, and also, this is a bit unfair because Uraka was 20 years old. Um, yeah, and Blanche was twelve, and you're comparing their their looks. Yeah, she's cruel. still growing. It's even face still changing. So apart from this, we think Blanche had dark hair, so she favoured the mm-hmm. more Spanish side of her lineage, mm-hmm. um, and she very much emulated her grandmother in character, as we've said, uh, because she was extremely intelligent and sort of poised and dignified, but had Lovely. a had a vicious temper under the surface. And had a very high opinion of herself. 
which sometimes <laughs> got her into trouble. So Blanche is off to Paris with Granny, and it's of course not the Paris that Eleanor of Aquitaine first encountered. It's it's yeah. much nicer. Philip II has just paved the streets. An French court is actually starting to surpass Eleanor's Aquitanian court because um, Eleanor dies uh, four years later in 1204, and that kind of so she an got end. to see Paris. Uh, updated. Eleanor. Eleanor. Oh, Eleanor visited Paris a few times um, in her oh, later okay. life. Yeah, yeah. Every time she was like, what? So around the same time that Eleanor died in 1204, um, Blanche and Louis were about 16, so they would have probably consummated their marriage around this time. Yeah. Uh, because the following year in 1205, Blanche gave birth to her first child, a girl suitably named Blanche, though sadly the baby died shortly oh. after birth. Oh. Um yeah, but there's more there's there's more where that came from. <laughs> the princess's next couple pregnancies were about three years apart, but by the time they were in their mid twenties, Blanche and Louis seemed to have gotten the hang of the whole, you know, being fruitful and keeping the child alive thing. Um, not necessarily keeping the child alive, oh. as as we will see. Um, yeah, but definitely, hard. you know, having enough to ensure that they'll at least have a few <laughs> few spares. Exactly. Um, yeah, Louis, unfortunately, he doesn't have super sperm like his grandfather, Louis the Seventh, um, had. So, you know, they're not, they they're not going to get, they're not getting a healthy child every time. Yeah, um, but they're getting children. Yes. So Blanche, just like her mother, ended up giving birth 12 times. Um, and there was a 13th on the way when Louis died. So lucky she didn't die in childbirth. Yeah. So Blanche was by no means incapacitated by her pregnancies, however. Um, she took an extremely active role in the kingdom's affairs long before she even became queen, which was probably helped by the fact that the role of queen, um, like queen consort, in Philip II's later reign, it was effectively vacant. Because if you remember, yeah. Ingeborg was the queen. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he, he didn't much like her and kept her in a monastery. Philip was also pretty brutal towards his son, Louis, um, as yeah. we saw last episode. But Blanche, he seems to have had a, had a soft spot for her, as, as we saw. Um, yeah. And especially for his grandchildren, which is like a tale yeah. as old as time. You know, the dad yeah. being harsh, being harsh to son, you, but, but then nice being nice grand. to your children. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you're like, seriously? And there's a story from last episode, um, albeit one told by a very unreliable minstrel uh, that Blanche threatened to pawn her sons. Oh, yeah. If Philip didn't provide her with money <gasps> so that she could reinforce Louis's illegal invasion of England. This is obviously just a story. Um, it, there's probably like a kernel of truth in it because it's likely that Blanche used Philip's love for her grandchildren to, to you know, get stuff for her and, yeah. and Louis. Gotta do what you gotta do. Yes. By the way, um, Blanche rode personally to the port city of Calais to see off these troops, uh, wow. poten- potentially nice. while pregnant. Um, so dedication. You know, she's got some dedication. So unfortunately, the troops never made it to England as they were intercepted and taken captive oh, yeah. by yeah. um, one of King John's generals, Hubert de Burgh. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, Blanche was, despite her threats to pawn her sons, um, she was an extremely <laughs> attentive um, and loving mother. She used every resource at her disposal to ensure her children got excellent educations. She even commissioned the publication of a Psalter, a very lavish and costly Ooh. book of biblical songs. Uh, nice. In order to teach Latin to her children, hmm. yeah, she'd open up the Psalter and they, they'd sing Latin together, and it was all fun, hmm. a fun time. And um, hmm. she also made sure they were all together, so they were all raised in proximity, so that they grew up with hmm. close bonds. Yeah, that's good. 
Not competing against each other. Yeah, we'll see Louis the Ninth always sort of going to battle with his brothers and them having like oh, camaraderie. Nice. Not like the English side where they're all like hating each other they were. Yeah. And Louis the Ninth and his sister Isabella also have a very strong bond and like very, um, they're both sort of intellectuals and, and they sort of mm. bond over that. So again, we're seeing some nice, strong family bonds among the Capetians, which is lovely to see. So moving on to the next stage of Blanche's life, where she actually becomes yes. queen. Um, yes. In July 1223, Philip II dies for the third time on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so just like Eleanor, he's just dying again and again. Um, and we get a fabulous joint coronation in Arras Cathedral, uh, which is memorialized in the lovely Jean Fouquet painting, which I showed Eliza last yep. episode. Um, I can show it to you again if you want, because I've got it right here. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful painting. And I just noticed this time looking at it, actually, that um, it's got uh, got lots of lovely heraldry details. Um, like mm. you can see in the background, there's like a Normandy guy with the lions. And there's a Flanders guy with the the black line on on yeah. um, black yeah. on yellow. Yeah, go listen to our noble houses episode on our Patreon <laughs> to learn all about the heraldry. Um, and you know, a sea of bishop hats. We love to see it. Yes. So, um, moving back to the reign. Once all of the pomp and pageantry was over, um, mm-hmm. Louis down now to business. Louis VIII had to get down to business um, to defeat the Huns, otherwise known as the <laughs> rebellious nobles and the um, uh, the Cathars as well down south. Yeah. So there's a sudden burst of military campaigns after a fairly inactive later reign for Philip II where Louis goes to Poitou and to Flanders, and then finally way down to Languedoc, uh, where Toulouse is, um, where he brought the huge royal army down to finally bring an end to the Albigensian Crusade, uh, yeah. which was a war. It wasn't just a war against the Cathar heretics. It was also a war against the nobility that were undermining the king's, the king and the Pope's authority in the region. Yeah. And, um, not punishing or sometimes outright protecting the Cathars. Yeah. And the, the most troublesome of these nobles, who we're going to have to get to know a little bit in this episode, is called Raymond VII, the Count of Toulouse, who, just as his father Raymond VI had, was excommunicated for his leniency towards the Cathars and his failure to answer the, to the King of France's demands of submission. It, it's basically King and the Pope teaming up to condemn the Count of <laughs> Toulouse. Meanwhile, Blanche is left in Paris to hold court in Louis' stead while he's on various campaigns. And once yeah. again, she doesn't allow herself to be limited by her pregnancies, which have become nearly constant by this point in her life. Um, God. Despite now nearing her 40s, she's, she's 38 around this point. And it was likely in this heavily pregnant state, as we mentioned earlier, that Blanche received the news that Louis VIII had died of dysentery on the way home. Didn't even get to see her bow one last time. Yeah. So on his deathbed, um, he rather unusually decided that his kingdom should be entrusted not to any of his male relatives or even to a council of bishops and nobles, uh, but to the person he trusted above anyone else in the entire world. His wife. 
his wife, Blanche. His queen. So before you could say primogeniture, Blanche sped with her eldest surviving son, now Louis IX, to Rand's Cathedral, where he was crowned less than a month after his father's death. So that's a quick king turnaround. Yeah, she's like, I'm not letting any rumours spread or any questions be asked. We're getting straight down to business where people can start having thoughts. Yes. Because remember, Philip II ended the tradition of junior kings. We don't have junior kings anymore. So instead, you've got to establish who the king is very quickly. Um, It was always very clear because, again, Louis Louis VIII uh, did a lot of work to make sure primogeniture was a thing. So no one's necessarily disputing that Louis the king, but they are going to be disputing who the regent should be, as we'll see. Because it is a woman. And if she's a woman, she's going to ruin everything, as we know. So, so Louis is 12 years old at this point, by the way. Oh, the age that his mum and dad got married. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. He seems kind Does of he old. Have when he, put it that he doesn't have a wife yet. No, he won't have a wife for, for a little while. Um, there's more important fish to fry right now. Yeah. So this is going to be like a real test of the robustness of France, whether the extraordinary gains of Philip II's long reign could withstand the absence of a strong adult male king. So with the royal army still far from home under the command of the king's lieutenant Humbert of Beaujeu. Um, Humbert. Humbert. Sounds, um, sounds like humbug. Yeah. Or in French it would be Humbert. Um, oh, I like that one better. But Humbert's fun too. Yeah, Humbert's fun. A long line of the um, the monarchs of um, Monaco called Humbert or Umberto. Oh. Yeah, so that's interesting. What anyway, on a tangent. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, as please. So Blanche and Louis, um, because the army is away, they're left wide open to being exploited by the nobility in northern France. So Blanche has to make some powerful allies make them fast. Yes. Thankfully, though, Blanche hasn't spent her 26 years in France playing tiddlywinks. She's not she's not playing around. <laughs> she's made she, connections. Yeah, she's, she was networking, you know. She was, she, was, she was doing the rounds, you know. Playing the game. She knew how it worked. So she had close friends in higher places. She had a good friend in the Archbishop of Sens, who is the primate mm-hmm. cleric of France. That gave her significant influence in Burgundy and Champagne, mm-hmm. as well as both the uh, Marshal and the Constable of France, which is useful getting the... Uh, yeah. local military on side and Blanche also had access to the overflowing treasury that Philip II had passed down and uh, she quickly assembled around her a council made up of mostly clerics who were willing to curtail the power of the nobility in favor mm. of both the bishops and the abbots and also the cities as well the 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 mm. boroughs who we've seen get you know increasingly more rights as time has gone on um to like a be independent from feudal lords and b to um sort of arm themselves with their own militias to combat like roving knights and that sort of thing to sort of end mm. the uh, period of anarchy that france was in before philip ii mm. so that's good so so that's the friends within the royal domain now blanche yeah. has to make friends outside of that among the vassals yeah so she immediately ordered that ferdinand of portugal the husband and co-ruler of Countess Joan of Flanders be released from imprisonment in Paris, where he had spent... Oh, he was imprisoned. Yes, he had actually spent 12 years there um, after being yeah. captured at the Battle of Bouvines by Philip II, going all the way back to Bouvines. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah. Ferdinand, he was known for his hot temper, temper and his deceitful nature. You can never trust the Portuguese. <laughs> um, but um, after being released by Blanche, he became um, unwaveringly Thanks. loyal to her because she basically releases him without any conditions. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll get him uh, on side. So after 12 years in prison. Yeah. yeah. It's one of her first acts as king, which obviously, you know, does a lot to stoke Ferdinand's ego. Um, yeah. Blanche also had a loyal vassal in her late husband's cousin, uh, Count Tybalt IV of Champagne, oh. of the House of Blois. At first, I didn't really understand why he was so loyal, um, but then I learned that he kind of had the hots for Blanche oh. and was was kind of I'm a love. kind of a hopeful suitor at, at this point. And uh, he was also oh. a love poet, and he wrote poems to her. <laughs> oh no, I don't want her to get remarried. And uh, at one point, one of her sons. Um, who's who's you know sort of on your way blank one of her sons gets angry at tybalt and throws cheese at him Ah! oh my god that is like the most french thing (laughs) throwing cheese i couldn't i couldn't figure out which son this was but yeah he throws some runny cheese at his face so so yeah (laughs) oh my god that is the best thing so blanche uh managed to get her ducks in a row with impressive speed uh, especially with that shotgun coronation, mm-hmm. all while being heavily pregnant, let me remind you. Um, which yeah, true, true. Th- the sources certainly don't. The sources are all written by men who, who do not care. So now it's time for three tests to come and try to take her out. Ooh. So I'm going to be like, like test number trials. one, test number two, test number three. Three trials. Well, they always say bad luck comes in threes. Well, all of the trials will end with her personally leading armies. Woo! So, We'll get into it. Yes. Yeah. Warrior Queen. Warrior Queen vibes. Um, so test number one came from a person we've only briefly mentioned in the last couple of episodes. This was Count Philip of Boulogne, the much younger half-brother of uh, Louis VIII, um, who was the product of Philip II's legally dubious marriage to Agnes yeah. of Morania, although he was yeah, 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 legitimized yeah. by the Pope. Philip is also called uh, Philip Herple. 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 Purple. <laughs> purple? Sounds like uh, what a parrot would say. They'd be like, purple? I think in French it's pronounced urpel, but um, I'm going to say purple because it's easier to say. Um, it's fun. As far as I can tell, it means Philip the skinhead. <laughs> <gasps> what is he, a Nazi? Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. But literally, like, a pel um, means, I think pel means... Uh, he just bald. Hell means skin and who means head. Um, so he just had an early case of becoming bald. Yeah, he's like I'm Prince hoping William it just meant he was bald. already balding. Yeah, I mean Philip II was bald, so maybe you know, like father, like son. Um, thankfully, that gene um, missed. Did not pass um, Louis the <laughs> Louis the eighth. Did not killed. pass down the direct line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pass down the, uh, the cadet branch. Um, so, because there are too many Phillips, I'm going to call him Uncle Herple. Uh- <laughs> yes, Uncle Herple. Oh my god, it's like the creepiest name. It's like the creepy uncle. Uncle Herple. Yeah, he's he's like he he it's now is just weird uncle. he's now just Uncle Fester in my mind because he's bold. Yes, and, yeah. He's a creepy weird uncle. He's un- he's Uncle Fester in the movie where he's got like the turtleneck. Um, yes, and like the wig. <laughs> yes, the bad wig. <laughs> yes. Um. So Uncle Herple had uh, been somewhat shunned by his dad, though his brother Louis had mm. actually been nice to him. He'd secured 
for him both the county of Clermont and the He was like, of- I can share with our father hating us. <laughs> Shared <laughs> experience. And um, he also got the hand of Countess Matilda II of Boulogne. Uh, which brought uh, a large slice of Picardy and Flanders under his rule. However, it wasn't enough for Uncle Herpel. Um, as the uh, as the king's nearest adult relative, he felt that he should be the regent. He should be not regent, Blanche, because a male relative is so much closer to the king than his mother. Exactly. Although by the time of Louis's death, Herpel is still like late teens, early twenties ish. Oh wow! Um, so um, he's a He's aiming high for someone his age. Let's just say that. Um, so Blanche I really uh, hope managed he wore purple. At purple one point. in purple. He's got his. In that's purple, the color of his turtleneck. It's 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 purple. But he can't afford the all the purple, so it's just like the turtle the collar bit. It's purple. Yeah, and it's just been dyed, so it's still very smelly. Because making purple dye was a smelly process, as we've said. Yeah. So Blanche I watched managed a video to... where they did it like the traditional way of how you make purple. Oh, dye. that's how you know. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So Blanche managed to, uh, because um, it was a video, it was a it was a four dimensional video where you could also smell the, the dye. <laughs> now the people <laughs> just kept mentioning it. They kept being like, "God, this stinks." <laughs> I was just being a smartass there. Um, I know. So Blanche managed to placate uh, Herpel at first by giving him a few castles. However, this sadly got greedy. Only, only made him stronger when he did decide to rebel uh, a few months after Louis the Ninth's accession. In early 1227. So things looked very bad for Blanche when Uncle Herpel managed to corner her in the town of Montlhery, where she and Louis were holed up, with Humbert and the royal army still hundreds of miles away. However, the loyal militia of the city of Paris uh, managed to arrive on time, and uh, because Montlhery is quite close to Mm. Paris, they brought enough numbers to drive Uncle Herpel's smaller force away. Good. Then, with the help of Champagne and Flanders, Blanche managed to lead uh, a significant enough force to bring Uncle Herpel to heel, um, ending uh, any hopes he had of ruling France through his nephew. Meanwhile, the royal army arrives back in France later in 1227, and Blanche assumes control of the armed forces. The south of France has been exhausted by decades of war, and Pope Gregory IX had thrown his weight behind peace efforts uh, between himself and the Count of Toulouse, which were finally yeah. achieved two years later in 1229 with the Treaty of Paris, which, as the name yeah. suggests, was mainly organized by Blanche rather than the Pope, because the Pope mm. very far away, and he's dealing with some emperor drama that we probably wow. ran out of time to get into in, the, in this episode. Always emperor drama. Always emperor drama. In this treaty, Blanche uh, gave power to a new arm of the church, uh, known as the Inquisition, um, which uh, you may have heard of, uh, which definitely sped things up when it came to crushing the Cathars. In addition, the treaty was intended to make Toulouse a territory under Capetian control, uh, mm. not by force this time, but through diplomacy. So um, Raymond ceded half his land to the royal domain and a lot of land to the church as well. And his daughter and sole heir, Joan, was to marry Alfonso, one of Blanche's younger sons, who was also being made Count of Poitiers. Mm. So the Treaty of Paris, huge triumph for Blanche and for the church. Mm. Got a bunch of land out of it. 
And in the same year that the Treaty of Paris was signed, Blanche also issued an ordinance declaring that the Crown could repossess the property of any excommunicated person if they had not properly repented after a year and a day. Um, mm. And this ordinance is called the Cupientes, which translates loosely as the the gimme gimmies. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Give me gimmies. Yeah, the mind, mind, minds. So, test number two for Blanche came the year after this treaty in 1230, when she decided to personally intervene in an internal war where um, Tybalt IV of Champagne, her unrequited love, um, was facing a three pronged invasion Ooh. from Boulogne, Brittany, and Burgundy, the three Bs. BBB. Yep who, if you look on a map, are literally surrounding <laughs> the, the Bois lands on all sides, and the royal domain, for that matter. So that's Uncle Herpel, uh, Peter of Dreux, and Hugh IV of Burgundy, other leaders. Um, and uh, these hostile lords wanted to claim Champagne in the name of the conveniently far away Queen Alice of Cyprus, Um who was Tybalt's cousin who'd married like a crusading king, hence why she's in Cyprus. Um and uh That's far fetched. Well she had ancestral claims to the region. Her father had been a count of Champagne, so I would be surprised if they didn't even tell her and they were just doing it under her name. <laughs> no, she definitely she sent messages to France being like, Hey, can I oh. have this land? Um like, even up. though she's technically ruling Cyprus on behalf of her son. Um, yeah. Yeah. So now that she had the royal army to hand, uh, Blanche personally led a coalition of allied lords into Champagne as a show of force against her disobedient uh, vassals, who then sort of scattered to the winds. Um, <laughs> of course. They, like, they back down by the end of the year. Saw the coming army. The conflict does continue on a simmer for another four years because Blanche has other fish to fry, which we'll get to in test number three. Mm -hmm. But Blanche eventually uh, makes peace by granting Queen Alice a generous pension Mm. out of her massive treasury, provided Alice uh, renounce her claim to Champagne and stop sowing discord among the French lords. Good. That's fine and dandy. It's like, women got to get along. Exactly. Meanwhile, you, you know, you just put two women in a room and they automatically resolve everything. They figure it out. Yeah. Funny, yeah, yeah. funny how that works. Um, Except <laughs> if you're on Game of Thrones. So meanwhile, in order to show uh, his gratitude to Queen Blanche, who he's presumably still in love with, uh, the vulnerable Tybalt uh, cedes a number of his territories outside of Champagne to the crown, um, including, get ready, the cities of Blois, Chartres, and Sancerre, which have been a core of uh, the the Blois territory. I mean, it's in the name. <laughs> One of the cities is Blois. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a huge win for the royal domain because um, it's 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 gaining some really significant territories um, to the southeast, d- d- directly southeast of Paris, um, these really rich uh, cathedral cities. Mm. And it is the moment that the House of Blois no longer controls Blois. So from now on, it's usually referred oh. to as the House of Champagne instead. Oh. Tybalt uh, will actually he'll end up being compensated for his losses because um, that same year in 1234 he became king of Navarre um, oh. after the death of his maternal uncle King Sancho the seventh who had no heirs I presume 
Yeah, he had no heir, so it passed to his sister's son, who was Tybalt. So the lands of Champagne become similar to England's lands in France, where they belong to a foreign king, but he still owes homage to France, and he still spends a lot of his time in France as a subject of the king of France. Yeah. Although eventually, Navarre's going to get kind of folded into France through a marriage alliance we're going to see down the line, um, which we'll get to. Small little correction here. And I don't know how I missed this in whatever I was reading, but Tybalt didn't cede his land to Louis IX just because he was grateful of Blanche intervening in his war. He actually, um, uh, towards the end of Blanche's regency, openly rebelled against uh, Louis IX, and uh, that was the reason that his land ended up getting taken away. Also, I think a lot of it was motivated by the fact that they didn't want another Angevin empire to happen. They didn't want an heir to a foreign kingdom to own all of this land within France. So there was a concerted effort to sort of curtail him a little bit. So Tybalt, you know, he's not as diehard of an ally to Louis and Blanche as I've made him appear in this podcast. So that's just a little correction there. So let's move on to um, test number three. Yeah. So, so far in her regency, Blanche has been having quite a bit of trouble with her cousin-in-law, Peter of Dreux, who is the mm. Duke of Brittany through his marriage to Duchess Alix, a granddaughter of Geoffrey uh, Plantagenet, um, mm-hmm. if we remember from Philip's episode. Yeah. Geoffrey's heirs become the Dukes of Brittany, although most of them are girls. So uh, at first, Peter becoming the Duke of Brittany seemed like a great move because he belonged to a cadet branch of the Capetians. Um, uh, so he's he's bringing that into the family. Greedy. Yeah, but he, I mean, he was very helpful at first to Louis the uh, Eighth in his wars against England. He provided a lot of support uh, across the across the sea. Probably thought he was going to get a slice of pie. That is literally what I thought. Um, But yeah, he's been disappointed by that. Um, And now it looks like he and Blanche's uh, uh, cousin, King Henry III of England, are getting a bit close for comfort, a bit close for the Queen's liking. Um, Um, Both of them are uh, are conspicuously absent at Louis IX's coronation. um, uh, And neither have yet sworn homage to King Louis. uh, Yeah. So this is particularly troubling because Peter of Dreux doesn't just control Brittany, he's also the Count of Perche in Normandy, and he also governs Anjou. Um, so that's a big chunk of the northwest of France. Um, mm. And uh, this danger is brought into very sharp focus in 1230, when an English army led by King Henry lands at Saint-Malo on the north coast of France. Uh, and Peter lets them come in. So this is one of several attempts by Henry III to reclaim the Angevin Empire, which was lost by his father, King John. And he gets an A for effort, but sadly he was, as Dan Jones writes, uh, the worst military commander the Plantagenets ever produced. (laughs) Oh, God! Oh! Scathing! Like, worse than John? Yep, worse than John. Oh, that's saying something. I mean, John at least had battle experience when he became king. True, true. Whereas Henry was a boy. I suppose this one is a puppet king. Blanche, in contrast to Henry, uh, proved to be a very adept military commander, yes. as, as we've seen. Not, not obviously personally on the front lines, uh, but, de- but definitely sort of in the vanguard, sort of riling directing. people up, directing uh, the movements of the army. Better than her opponent. <laughs> 
Let's yes. just say. By now, Louis the Ninth is theoretically leading the troops as he is with her. Um, and he's sort of in his in his late teens at this point. Um, okay, like 17. Yeah, but the, but the fact that she's still at his side shows that her presence is still important. Like, she's still kind of yeah, in yeah. charge. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she gathers an assembly of her lords who, despite their raging hostilities, because the war in Champagne is still kind of going on at this point, uh, managed to get over themselves for, for five minutes and unite um, and join her in defending off the invasion. So Blanche's Good. forces, um, they take on well, I suppose it's like, you know, when it's like you squabble amongst yourselves, but then when someone's, um, there's outsiders, you'll unite. Yeah. And we've seen this happen. We've seen this happen before. Yeah. We saw it happen with like the, when the, when the Holy Roman Emperor tried to invade once. Um, yeah. It didn't really mention it, but it happened a lot in Philip II's reign. So Blanche's forces take Anjou and then they march right up to the border of Brittany, um, at w- mm. which point Peter abandons Henry and runs back <laughs> home, uh, forcing Henry to return to England as well. And the following year, Blanche invades Brittany and forces Peter yes. to swear an oath of homage. And yes. a few years after that, uh, after Peter rebels another two times, um, Peter is forced to sign an agreement that he will step down uh, as Duke of Brittany um, when his son, uh, John the Red, comes of age, which happens shortly Ooh, after. Ooh, John the Red. And for this gesture, Brittany under John the Red becomes a loyal vassal of Louis IX. So Woo! Blanche has secured that for him. So um, before we get to Louis' majority and what Blanche is doing in that period, a bit of a family update uh with Blanche's children. Uh yeah, so who's alive. Yeah, <laughs> who's alive? So back in 1232, six years into the Regency, two of Blanche's sons, uh John and Philip Dagobert, died at the ages of oh. 13 and 10. Um oh. but they are thankfully the last of Blanche's children to die as children. Oh. She has given birth to two daughters and eleven sons, but now has only one daughter, Isabella and four sons, Louis, Robert, Alfonso, and Charles. We'll be right back after this. The commander said, don't worry, I don't have the authority to kill you today, which was positive for that day anyway. In 1993, Chris Moon was captured by the Khmer Rouge while clearing landmines in Cambodia. With survival probability low, Chris was brought in front of the boss. He was just given a local nickname, Mr. Clever. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of the Batting the Breeze podcast. I'd love you to check out how Chris survived, along with some other great human stories at battingthebreeze.com. Hopefully see you there. Feels like Alfonso's name just the random one mixed in. Yeah, well, yeah, it would have been a bit a bit exotic. Um, well, at one point, there was an heir to the throne of England called Alfonso because of a oh. because of the Spanish marriage, but he, I didn't he, know that. he died young, yeah. Um, Edward the First and Eleanor of Castile's son, I believe, oh. was called Alfonso. But then it um, he died and it went to Edward the Second, who was less good. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so um, she's overcome her three tests, and na- and now Blanche can finally uh, invest her son with the full powers of a sovereign and dissolve her regency council on the twenty fifth of April, twelve fifty four. Uh, it's 12.34, not 12.54. Because uh, I was like, mm-hmm. Louis was 40 at the end of his regency. Um, so 
the the Regency ends on Louis's twentieth birthday, so that is um that's a long Regency. <laughs> mm. Um, eight years. Eight years, and uh, um, you, you often regencies seem to end in this period at the age of fourteen. So, um, they're definitely stretching the definition of a majority. Mm. Um, although regencies in this period aren't like official things, yeah, the way that they will be in later centuries. Like the title regent isn't even used. Blanche is referred to yeah. as uh, the guardian of her son. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Guardian. I am the Guardian of France. Cool title. Yeah. So a month later, on the 27th of May, Louis, as you were wondering before, gets married uh, to Margaret Woo. of Provence, mm-hmm. um, who was actually the sister of Eleanor of Provence, who is about to become the Queen of England by marrying Henry oh. III. So we've got two sisters. One is Queen of England. One is Queen of France. So the brother-in-law's. Yeah. Yes, and they are brothers-in-laws slash first cousins once removed. Um, mm. Because Blanche is, of course, the King of England's first cousin. True. Yeah. Um, complicated, messy family trees. We love to see it. Um, always <laughs> so, in the royal fans. Always. Uh, this is a result of negotiations with her father, Count Raymond Ber- Berengar IV of P- Provence. <laughs> that was a mouthful. Mm. Count Raymond Berengar IV of Provence, who was actually of the House of Barcelona, um, hence the long, confusing name, um, which people in the House of Barcelona always seem to have long, confusing names. Um, Mm. So this was an alliance against uh, Raymond VII, Count of Toulouse, who was kicking up trouble despite having signed the the Treaty of Paris. Uh, he, He was trying to disinherit his daughter, Joan, so that so that Alfonso oh. w- wouldn't get to lose. <laughs> oh. If you remember, Joan and Alfonso get uh, married together. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, Blanche is definitely marrying her sons into the south of France to try to increase royal authority there, as we'll see. Mm, yeah. And can you guess what Margaret's experience was arriving at the French court? Disappointing. How well do you think she was uh, treated as as the new queen? <laughs> not well not well at all um they still liked the queen mother it was hate Everyone. at first sight between both of them and yeah oh. blanche is is still keeping the queen's seat warm she basically freezes margaret out of any uh queenly power she even tries to um separate uh, her and Louis as much as possible. She at one point uh, decrees that they not be allowed to see each other except in the marriage bed. What? Um, she's she's literally being like Margaret is purely a baby machine. She is not allowed any power at all. Don't let her near the so king. She doesn't. Want... She'll whisper in his ear and she'll she'll turn him against me. Basically, is her. Oh my god. Her line she of doesn't her. want like. Oh my god. It's like Cersei. It's, Being afraid of Marjorie. Yes, the younger, the younger, God, more that's... beautiful woman, and also Margaret and her sisters, the the Provencal princes, are renowned for their beauty. Um, whereas, uh, and Blanche, she was being called we'll like recall, average. She's the ugly sister. Yeah. So, but uh, it's like she doesn't want her son to have a marriage, a happy marriage, like she had. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's very it's very unfeminist of her. I've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. 
Um, bit of a reminder that uh, feminism wasn't uh, invented until the 1800s. Um, <laughs> so, um, yes, the two have a very uh, fraught relationship. And as we might suspect, despite the end of the Regency, Blanche continued uh, as a sort of guardian figure for the king and the realm. She was a valued fixture of his council. Um, because at this point, she was basically an expert at mediating among the unruly vassals. Mm-hmm. And she did a lot of uh, strategic, you know, arrangement of of marriage alliances and stuff in the kingdom. For example, after Uncle Herple died, uh, he left a daughter named Joan, uh, who was married mm-hmm. to a loyal Capetian supporter, uh, Gaucher of Saint-Paul. So Blanche is running around doing these negotiations and um, yeah. making sure things run smoothly throughout the kingdom while Louis is sort of get, getting the hang of of, of leadership. Yeah. Which is good. It's very good politically, um, but personally, obviously, causes these strange tensions. Yes. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit grim there. Blanche actively sowed mistrust in the court against Margaret, uh, accusing her of being a spy for her brother in law in England um, and uh, promoting English sympathies at court because she, uh, you know tried to start a dialogue for peace between the kings and uh this went down very well uh, um <laughs> <laughs> margaret ended up being dragged before louis the ninth and forced Ooh. to swear an oath to obey the king's ordinances which was a humiliating thing for the anointed queen to have to do yeah um, god poor thing this finally uh, succeeded in destroying any affection between margaret and her husband um oh. so Blanche wins, basically. <laughs> well, giving her son an unhappy marriage. Yeah, they keep having children, but it, it from this point, it, it's very uh, grudgingly. <laughs> it's like um, in and out, or just like, you know, um, going through the motions. It's going through the motions, exactly. So despite these tensions, uh, Blanche and Louis together usher France into what becomes later um, nostalgified, if that's a word, um, as a golden age in in, in French mm. history. For centuries, especially during the Hundred Years' War, people are going to be looking back on Let's the reign back. of Louis IX as like, oh, wasn't that nice? <laughs> was that a nice time? Things are stable. We've got like loads now. of royal heirs running around. Um, everything's very, very stable. In contrast to France, Germany and Italy are in turmoil thanks to um, Emperor Frederick II's feud with Pope Gregory IX, uh, which, course. again, we won't get into but it's an extension of the sort of Guelphs versus Ghibellines conflict that we introduced in Philip II's episode mm. as well as the overall shitty relationship between the Pope and Emperor that's been going on for like forever after forever and ever um so the Pope asked Louis and Blanche numerous times to get involved and although they were happy to court papal approval uh, which had been lacking during the last couple of reigns uh, they refused they're any like, attempt eh. to, uh, you know, get drawn into a war. Yeah, well, they're like, we're not going to get involved in this. We don't need to, so no. stay out of this. We'll be bystanders. Marching the French troops down to a part of France was an effort. Imagine yeah, having to imagine march going the, out of the French country. army yeah, over the Alps and into Italy oh. to help the Pope. That would be a nightmare. Um, yeah. Who am I, Charles the Bold? Um, <laughs> yeah, do I have time for this? Nah, uh, uh. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go to Italy and then die of dysentery and then get buried in a barrel. That's not happening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was a that was a deep cut back to Charles the Bold. Yeah, he's um, like, I have no barrel death. 
So instead of focusing his efforts into, you know, combating the emperor, Louis instead decides to become a uniting figure for Christendom to, you know, unite everyone under a common Peace and cause. And, and, and what- The crusade! Yes. yes. <laughs> Always the crusade. You know where this is going. Um, what number crusade is this? Um, well, we'll get to what number it is. Um, it, um, so in 1239, uh, Tybalt of Navarre, as he now is, King of Navarre, uh, he goes on crusade first. It's kind of like a mini crusade, so it doesn't get a number. Okay. Um, okay. And while Louis isn't in, in a position to go himself because his mother strongly opposes like, him going, Louis does um, actively get involved in uh, funding and planning this crusade. Yeah. And these minor crusades in the 1230s and 40s uh, don't prove very successful. Um, The armies basically just go to the desert and die. Um, (laughs) But they prove to be a great way of funneling the French lord's aggression. Um, uh, So they're not going against each other. Yeah, it's like, hmm, France is surprisingly peaceful. All of the unruly younger sons of the realm have gone off and died. (laughs) What? Um, so there's no like tension and conflicts and fighting for rule. Yeah, there is still the conflict in the call? south with Raymond. Uh, yeah, but it uh, isn't like as big. Not as big, and um, not as wide scale. Yeah, there there is also a an English invasion, which we'll get into a bit more next episode. So I'm gonna like skip over it a bit here because we do not have time. You mean English invasion of France or a French invasion of England? Sorry. English invasion of France, yes. So basically, um, Henry III lands his troops on the west coast of France at Saint-Ange, and uh, this becomes known as the Saint-Ange War. And um, uh, basically, uh, I won't get into details, but it, it ends very well for Louis IX with the Battle of oh, Tyburg cool. in 1243, where he basically sends Henry into flight and humiliates mm-hmm. him. Um <laughs> So that's 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 lovely. So so after returning from this campaign uh, to Paris in 1244, uh, Louis, however, becomes terribly ill. Dysentery. Uh, at one point, he is paralyzed and loses the ability to speak. Oh, wow! That's really bad. Yes. How old is he? He's uh, in his early 30s at this point. Oh God. Yeah. But he recovers, and it's a miracle, and the oh, court is relieved, woo! with the exception of Blanche. Uh, <laughs> what, she wanted her son to die? Well, as he recovers from his near-death experience, Louis <gasps> announces his intention to repent for his sins that have obviously caused the illness. Gets his wife? To take the cross and go on crusade. Oh, that is it. And he's bringing his wife with him. Oh, Oh, let's see, is it going to be another Eleanor Sitch and Louis Sitch? <laughs> see, Will they hate each other more or bring them closer together? I have a theory about this, but um, yeah. Blanche, basically, Blanche basically is like, I would rather you have died than you go on crusade. Like, she's really mad about this yeah. and she's not mincing words. Um, uh, and Margaret's like, I didn't want you to die. Yes, but Louis is basically like, I do what I want. Like, he's he's getting into this stage. He's like, I'm- Yeah, he's putting I'm, his foot down. It's like, I'm not a mama's boy. I'm 32. Um, it's, it's time for me to die. do something myself. Yeah, exactly. If I'm going to go on crusade, I'm damn well going to go on crusade, mama. Yes. And you can like it or lump it. And not only that, but he also convinced all three of his younger brothers to go with him. So, oh, no. 
Yeah. By this point, uh, Louis had become single-mindedly obsessed with retaking the Holy Land. It become like uh, in the background, it oh. become a bit of an obs- an obsession for him. Oh my God! So it's like Henry VIII and his obsession with having a son. Yeah, or, or or indeed Henry VIII and his obsession with with getting France back. That's probably a more apt comparison, which is a thing that's less often talked about. Um, I knew that, but I was just like, yeah. Yeah, let's go with the one people more no. Yeah, this um, obviously meant a second regency for Queen Blanche, but oh. it was not one that she relished or enjoyed. Um, yeah, she's like, I don't want this. Finally yeah. time to, I've retired. Yeah, however, my theory about Margaret accompanying <laughs> Louis is that. Oh my God. Blanche was kind of like punishing him for being like, well, you have to take your wife with you. <laughs> she was going, oh, there'll be another Eleanor sitch. Well, they'll really hate each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be funny if they ended up really liking each other during that time away with the mother not there. I love that your mind they immediately really- went to Eleanor and Louis the Seventh because that's, yeah, it's, it's an exact mirror of that, yeah. Well, come on, Crusade. Like, literally, I can imagine, like, you know, they hate each other, but then when their mum's out of the picture, they go, actually, we have mm. lots in common. Yeah. And spoiler alert, the the crusade goes just as badly as uh, Louis VII's crusade. However, oh, um, it actually seems to lead to an improvement in uh, Louis in and marriage. Margaret's uh, yeah, Ooh, yay. marriage. Um, Diverging from being the exact same as Eleanor and Louis. Yeah, they're not repeating the mistakes of history. So, yeah. I mean, it helps that Louis is actually interested in sleeping with his wife. Um, <laughs> at least uh, one saving at grace. At least mother's not around. And mother's not around. Um, so here, Blanche and Louis' stories diverge a bit as he goes off on the Seventh Crusade. And we're going to get a lot more into Louis' military campaigns um, in next episode. He might even get a two-parter, yeah. but I'm not sure. Ooh. So Blanche's main annoyance during this second regency was the constant need to keep sending funding to the Crusaders. Uh, she's like, uh, my treasury! Yeah, who end up first in Egypt and then in up in modern-day Lebanon. Um, huh? and, uh, and the pyramids. And a bit of Turkey as well. They go all over the place. It's, it's, a, bit of a, it's a bit of a mess. Uh, but we'll get to it next episode. And uh, she spent a lot of her time courting support from the Pope, uh, which was a good shield from further English attacks. Um, so basically mm. England would come up to nearly invading them and the Pope would be like, nah, mm, uh, The Pope would be like, nah, uh, uh, they're doing my holy work. Henry III was a very pious king. And um, if you'll recall from a previous episode, John had sworn homage to the Pope for England. Oh. Um, like he'd made England a vassal of the Pope. And oh, yeah. uh, Henry continued to honour this, so he basically did Sorry. whatever the Pope told him to do. <laughs> puppet king. But not a puppet king, because the Pope is still very far away. Um, True. But basically, whenever the Pope, you know, if the Pope says jump, Henry says how high. Um, uh, yeah. So Blanche uses this against him by by getting a pro- getting faith from the Pope. If that makes uh, sense. Oh, anytime like he she is a whiff of like English thinking invading, she's Pope. <laughs> Come tell him or not. Come on. And Pope's like, okay. And goes, Henry, no. No means no. You stay in England and behave. They're having a slap fight and then Blanche turns yeah. around. She's like, Pope. And Pope's like, yes. Be nice to your cousin, Henry. <laughs> I don't want to. You listen to me, young man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so Blanche is sort of acting very defensively again in this region. In this region. She's, she has she's, to. Yeah, she, the she army's like to. gone. 
Everyone's gone. But the bubs are there, right? The like the grand the bubs that bubs. have been born so far are are there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's like, I'll educate these little bubs. Yeah. Turn them against their parents. <laughs> <laughs> As revenge for leaving me to go on a crusade. Yeah. Well, they, they'd be about. They'd be at at the oldest ten years old at, at this point. So. Um, they're not going to do much. But so another unhelpful occurrence was a succession dispute in Flanders um, because we needed uh, another di- succession dispute in Flanders. It happens every couple episodes. It wouldn't be Flanders without a succession dispute. Yeah. And this is the one that leads to Margaret the Black becoming Countess Ooh. of Flanders, who we might, we might explore a bit in the future. Yeah, I remember um, that. On, on Patreon. So in spite of Blanche's efforts to hold the kingdom together over the next couple of years, by 1250, news was arriving in France, that Louis' campaign was going appallingly, uh, with oh, the Crusade gosh. army bogged down in the Nile Delta, nowhere near conquering Egypt, let alone the Holy Land. Uh, but yeah. worst of all, uh, news arrived to Blanche that her second son, Robert of Artois, had been killed in battle at oh, no. Mansoura. Yes. These dark tidings caused unrest among the people of France, uh, many of whom blamed the crusading lords and uh, and their sinful acts for failing Christendom. Uh, so Louis getting the blame? Well, no, not Louis. Um, oh. Everyone but Louis seems to be getting the blame <laughs> for this. And this led to a movement known as the Shepherd's Crusade, which was led by a cranky old Hungarian monk called Jacob. He's like, I've had enough of this. Yeah who claimed that their king was stranded in Egypt and that nobody in France, neither the barons nor the church nor the queen herself, were doing everything, anything to help. Um, despite, He'll do it himself. Despite Blanche having sent a giant wad of cash to Louis earlier that year. Um, Not enough, know, according to that Jacob, Hungarian. Jacob apparently didn't know that. Um, so Jacob the Hungarian uh, assembled a throng of 60,000 peasants. Um, wow. Most, mostly from uh, Flanders in Picardy, so giant angry mob, um, and made to march to the Holy Land. Um, When they got down to Paris, however, Blanche ordered that the river crossing be closed off. She ordered her troops to prevent them crossing to the left bank, and she demanded uh, that the peasants go return to their fields and their parishes. Uh, But the peasants... She's like, no needless dying. Yes. Uh, but the peasants, furious that the queen and the church establishment were opposing them, uh, instead moved to Rouen in Normandy, the opposite direction of the Holy Land. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they uh, managed to take over the city, depose the archbishop, ah! and throw his priests into the river. Oh, <laughs> it's like, if we can't get across, we'll throw you guys in the river. <laughs> Yeah, so this uh, crusade quickly becomes, uh, yeah, very Rebellion. Um, yeah. And uh, from there, they moved back into Picardy and then down into Berry, where they found a new target, uh, the Jews. Because, of course, oh. you know, if we can't get to one infidel, we'll get, get to the to Holy another. Land. Yeah, exactly. So the Jews. Both Blanche cool. and the church actually um, at this time considered the Jews to be under their protection. Um, Blanche was actually oh. quite uh, sympathetic to the Jews. And this partly oh, that's a surprise. is, yeah, in contrast to her husband. Um, and this, a lot oh, of this is everyone. because of um, her Spanish heritage, actually. Yeah. Because um, the Spanish are, at this time, pre, you know, pre-Spanish Inquisition, they're more influenced by the Arab practice of 
you know, um, not Everyone separating Jews from society and, and just making them pay a special, like, non-believer tax. Um, they're, yeah. they're more into that than um, persecuting them. Um, still, obviously, there was persecution, but Blanche not, came into France with this attitude to... that, like, the Jews have a purpose and we and There's we as the crown slash church have to protect them. That's good of her. Yes. Um... So Blanche comes into Berry and uh, she saw to it that the crowds of peasants were mass excommunicated uh, and uh, forcibly broken up and dispersed. And the ensuing violence led to Jacob the Hungarian being killed, which basically, you know, cut off the serpent's head. Um, And that's the end of the Shepherd's Crusade, which didn't even leave northern France. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, Blanche's younger sons, Alfonso of Poitiers, and Charles of oh, no. Anjou returned prematurely from oh, the crusade, um, while Louis IX had stubbornly stayed behind. Um, like, no, it can still be sorted out. We can still win. Yeah. Just give up, brother. Blanche urged both of them to go back with aid for Louis, or at the very least go convince him to come home. But both of them and refused because like, they had their own fish to fry in France. And they were like, we've already been there. We're not going back. Yeah. Alfonso's father-in-law, Raymond of Toulouse, had just died, so he was pressing oh. his wife's claim in Toulouse. Uh, while meanwhile, Charles had uh, recently married Beatrice, uh, mm-hmm. a uh, a sister of um, Margaret of Provence, who, um, despite being the younger daughter, was actually pronounced the heiress to Provence. Um, oh. So he's trying to consolidate her claim, and Charles... Charles is the Count of Anjou, he also becomes the Count of Provence, and he also eventually becomes the King of Sicily, um, but we'll oh. maybe get to that in a future episode. But Charles, the the, nice. the youngest son Charles, ends up being, in many ways, uh, just as influential as, as Louis IX. Yeah. Um, so these sons, they're too tied up in, in their own drama to... Uh, worry about their brother. Worry about the crusade. They've, they've moved on, but Louis has not. Yeah. Um, He's like, so, doesn't want to give up. Doesn't want to admit defeat. So by 1252, having lost control over not only her sons, but in many ways with the kingdom itself slipping out of her grasp, um, Blanche falls gravely ill. um, And she decides, uh, like her grandmother, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, to take the vows of a nun at the last minute. And she sees out her last days at Maubuisson Abbey outside Paris, uh, which she had founded 16 years earlier and uh, had already been used as a royal re- residence. And uh, on the 27th of November, 1252, at the age of 63, Blanche oh. of Castile dies four years into her second regency. Um, and Louis still away? Louis the Ninth is still on crusade, uh, and the governance of France fell to his brothers, Alfonso and Charles, and a council of bishops who proceed to plunge the realm into a period into of sudden chaos. <laughs> of course, when Louis has to come back, you'd hope. Yeah. And we'll find out what happens uh, next when we cover the rest of Louis IX's reign next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, news would not reach Louis IX for another three months. Well, just take time. He received the news in Sidon, a, a city in modern-day Lebanon, and he refused to speak to anyone for two days. Oh, in mourning. And it would take another year for him to finally give up the ghost and get a ship back home from Acre. Pay respects uh, to his mother. Yeah. 
the the seventh crusade having failed yet again to take jerusalem oh, so number seven. that is the life of blanche of castile now let's get into enchante yes. let us rate her enchante so blanche worked very hard in her time to bolster the splendor and magnificence of the french monarchy uh, to a new level yeah. that we haven't seen before. So just build it again. She, she keeps on building it. Yes. She keeps on building the legacy. Good on her. She widely patronized new building projects, new educational institutions, uh, and new scriptoria to produce manuscripts, all of which would help enshrine the reigns of her and her son as a golden age. Woo. And we'll get more into this golden age in Voulez-vous. But yeah, there are a number of modern depictions of Blanche that I found, but none that I would call like a definitive portrait in the way that we have for the kings. So I'm actually going to use a contemporary image for her episode image. Ooh. Something a bit different. Um, which is from what's called the Toledo Bible. Um, mm. Not because Toledo. it was made in Spain, but because it is housed in Toledo, which is a city that Eliza and I have visited. Um, so I'm not sure if we would have seen this when we were in Toledo, but it's in Toledo in the cathedral. Oh, it's in the cathedral, which I think was closed when we went there. So that's a bit sad. Yeah, because we went on um, King's Day. Yeah. So this is um, a a page from that Bible. It's very shiny and gold. Yeah, um, the, the bottom is the scribes, you know, writing the Psalter and mm. the, oh, not the Psalter, the Bible, I should say. And at the top is a depiction of Blanche instructing her son, Louis IX, um, which becomes a motif in art, actually. Um, It's depicted in manuscripts, paintings, and stained glass windows from her time right up to the modern day. And I'll I'll send you a couple of these. Just a sampling of of, of these images. Looks like she's like, this is how you rule, son. Yeah, very much that. So these are some images of, of, of Blanche instructing Louis. Oh, yeah, they are. They're all, like, similar, being, like, hand-raised, lecturing. Yes, exactly. He's like, yes, mother. Yes, yes, yes. Which is a very, it's you know, it's a very powerful, enduring image that, that, got, that yeah. comes down through the ages. Yeah, the mother educating the son. Yes. And, of course, we've got the uh, the coronation painting, which is quite nice. The Jean yes. Fouquet painting, which I've already shown you. Yeah. We have a lovely statue, uh, a very prominent statue Woo. in Paris in the Jardin de Luxembourg um, of Blanche. Oh, yeah. Looking nice and white and regal. Nice. Yes, um, very regal. Also, little fun fact, mm-hmm. uh, the 2008 Stade Francais jersey, so the jersey of their main... Um, Soccer, I believe it's a soccer team. It might be a rugby team. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't do sport, but um, it has a it has a depiction of Blanche of uh, of of Castile surrounded by lilies, um, uh, which I'll show you now. So yeah, it's Blanche with this magnificent crown. Uh, it's surrounded by flowers. It's a very um, no, it's rugby. Oh, it is rugby. I thought it. Yeah, yeah. It might be rugby. Anyway, my first instinct was right. <laughs> Apparently, um, the, the people complained about this jersey and thought it looked unmanly um, oh, back in 2008. Very manly. Gotta love toxic masculinity in 2008. Because uh, <laughs> rugby can't be for women. Um, well, it was men wearing the jersey. The Star from Eight is, is, a, is a men's rugby team. But um, they just decided one year, let's, let's put... Blanche of Castile, who's a national icon. I like that. On the, uh, on the rugby jersey. So, yeah, it's nice. Good on them. Good on them. 
uh, defying the male stereotypes, doing that, yes. doing that stuff. Uh, Blanche would have been proud. So, yeah, that is Enchanté. That that is most of the stuff that comes down to us. Uh, also, uh, when you Google uh, Blanche of Castile, uh, you know how it says somebody's occupation when you Google yeah. them. It comes up as like actor or something. For her, it comes up as composer. Oh, because she composed a song, uh, which. Ooh. I'll just talk about it now, actually. I was going to talk about it in Bully Group, but I'll talk about it now. So she possibly composed a song. Uh, it's kind of like people say Henry VIII composed Green Sleeves, um, where it's yeah. like, eh, might, might not have happened. But it's, it's, it is a chanson mariale, which is a, a song uh, dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. It is called Amour ou trop tard me suis pris, which I think means uh, love caught me too late. So it's a prayer, but it's also a love song. Um, nice. Blanche writes. And it's actually not in Latin. It's in the it's in the Middle French vernacular. So Ooh, hence why I can't so read it. <laughs> then I couldn't find the <laughs> translation of it, which is a bit unfortunate. But I've got a I've got a, um, a clip of some audio for it if you want me to share that with you. But. Yeah. got a lovely song um That's nice. so that is the legacy of Blanche Castile it's pretty impressive I think yeah I think it's a good legacy it's a good legacy I like it hmm I like it a lot do you think it's now we gotta decide do you think it's Eleanor of Aquitaine levels because we we gave her a 10 out of 10 each Eleanor that's the thing like you would want like you kind of wish it would be but you're like I never even heard of her till yeah. before, so it feels like I can't. I think in that way, but she's kind still of going to get a high one. Short. Yeah, she does have increasingly a lot of sort of novels and stuff, and biographies yeah. and stuff being written about her. So she's getting more and more attention. Um, yeah. Hopefully, this podcast will also help bolster her reputation. Yes. Um, but I think it it falls short of a, a perfect score for Enchanté. Yeah, like a eight or nine. 8.5. Oh, but that contemporary image, that's just so good. True, true. And we, we've had very few contemporary images. True. Um, I'm, I think I'll do a 9. I just feel I need to stick with 8.5. So that is a 17.5 for Enchanté. Not a shabby start. Woo! So moving on to On Guard. On Guard. Yas. Yas. Yas Queen mm-hmm. Slay. And she does indeed slay. Uh, in this round. Yeah, so during her first regency, Blanche proved to be a very competent military leader. We've got a woman directly leading armies. So that's great. Um, uh, so that's already like five <laughs> on guard points as far as I'm concerned. Um, True. So uh, the contemporary chroniclers do often downplay her role. Like they always say, oh, it's it's Louis leading the army. It's Louis. But really, like Louis is too young at that point. So it would have. Yeah. 
it would have been bought. Uh, we also saw her playing a military role as far back as Philip II's reign when she supplied the reinforcements for Louis VIII's invasion of England. Mm. Blanche was known for her very fiery temper and her religious fervor, which uh, both would have helped to inspire and uh, also strike fear into the troops around her. Behalf um, of her enemies. Uh, Blanche uh, treated her queenship as a sort of mission given to her from God. Um, oh. So the way she saw it, uh, failure was not an option. Um, uh, and like failure or die. Yes. And throughout her life, she was fiercely protective of her children's, uh, not necessarily safety, but definitely their immortal souls, um, particularly that of Louis. Um, she's said to have claimed that she would rather see him be put to death than fall to sin. Um, Ooh, damn. there's a lot of Blanche threatening to uh, harm her children <laughs> in the name of, uh, in the <laughs> name like, of friends. work. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, she did everything she could to impress upon Louis that kingship was not just a political office. It was a sacred duty. And, yeah. uh, it, it worked rather too well in my opinion, as it did lead to him going on crusade, going a bit too far. <laughs> she was not about that. Also, we'll see uh, after Blanche dies and Louis gets back from Crusade, there's a period of austerity where Louis sort of casts a casts a bit of a shadow over the court and makes everything a bit grimmer and Dreary. bleaker. But anyway, back to her, her first regency. All three of the campaigns she leads successfully. Um, she passes yes. all three tests, I should say. Yes. Uh, she organizes a treaty that ends the Albigensian Crusade, where both Philip II Ooh. and Louis VIII had failed to end that war. Ooh. She benefited from the fact that the French uh, couldn't really form like a baron's alliance the way that the English lords had because they were too busy yeah. fighting among themselves. Um, That's helpful. So she kind of exploited that. Uh, and uh, Blanche capped these defensive victories with an ambitious fortification project. Um, particularly centered around the castle of Angers, uh, the capital of Anjou, uh, which she recaptured from Peter of Brittany. Um, yes. So the new and improved castle was completed in 1234 after only four years of construction and okay. uh, projected royal power in the former Plantagenet territory um, and was considered Ooh. the most magnificent castle since Richard I's Chateau Gaillard. Damn. Yeah. And we're now at peak medieval castles. So definitely start yes. envisioning uh, castles with like the huge thick stone walls, uh, the crenellated towers and moats. And and of course, Yay. murder holes as we love. Oh, murder holes, yeah. Yeah. I love me a murder hole. Can't forget the murder holes. Um, castles in this period were now more reliant on strong outer walls rather than the central keep. So you've got yeah. a strong sort of gatehouse structure and that's doing the main heavy lifting when it comes to, to defense. Yeah. Well, so the important. interior of the castle can become a nice sort of safe, spacious place for all of your, yeah. all of your, you know, Jeez. I don't know what people do in, in castles. Play um, music. Yeah. Paint, chill. Paint. Have a relaxing time. Eat. Weave tapestries, that sort of thing. Yeah. Just um, a nice relaxing time. Start a herb garden, you know, all that sort of thing. Yes. Uh, now I'm just imagining sieges as like just lockdown. Um, <laughs> yeah, basically. I hope they had a grocery store with lots of toilet paper within the castle. Uh, <laughs> everyone's baking bread. <laughs> yeah. Taking up knitting. Yeah. 
So yeah, peak medieval castles. How, however, in uh, Blanche's second regency, uh, things go go downhill a bit as royal authority severely wanes and uh, mm. completely collapses upon her death. Um, though this is mainly the fault of Louis the Ninth draining the treasury yeah. for his crusade. Crusade, such a waste of money. And also, you know, draining away the all of the competent fighting men as well. That is, that doesn't yep. help either. Letting them die. So, and also, of course, uh, on guard is not just about military stuff. It's also about maintaining power. And we can say that Blanche definitely does this very well based on the fact that yep. she is the supreme woman in the kingdom long after her ends, to the point where she then has a second regency. She completely shuns Margaret from the spotlight. Yeah, true. She she maintains her power, basically. Although it would be a mistake to see Louis as, like, under her thumb in a sort of wimpy way, because um, Jim Bradbury writes that Louis IX wasn't simply dominated by his mother, but, quote, was a strong character who respected his mother. He grew up under her wing, but was never entirely dominated. Just, she was like the angel on his shoulder, giving advice. Exactly. Or the devil in, in some cases. Yeah, both. <laughs> uh, we'll get into the morality of Blanche of Castile in Valeru, but but what do we want to give her for on guard? Good score. I think it's a very Success. good score. It's not yeah, only a woman leading armies, but it's a woman sustaining power over a very long period of time, which is something that Eleanor of Aquitaine failed to do. Yeah. You know, what do we give Eleanor? Imprisoned. Um, a seven and a seven point five. Okay, she was higher than that. Yeah, definitely. Eleanor didn't lead any battles, did she? No, not in this direct way. Yeah. Um, and she was pretty spotty when it came to maintaining her own power. True, true. And uh, courting the favor of lords, she wasn't very good yeah. at that either. <laughs> she couldn't play the game. She couldn't play the game as well. She played the game pretty well, but but just not as but well not as her quite. granddaughter. Yeah. Yeah, I think Blanche is as like a 9.5, 10. 10? Wow. That is 9.5, strong. 10. I think I'll say 9.5 just because the second regency kind of got away from her. True. Even True. though it wasn't I'll her fault. 9.5. Even though it wasn't her fault, it's yeah. like, uh, takes away You're a little bit. Yeah. It is her version of Charlemagne's Spanish campaign. It's like the little blip mm. that's like, mm. <laughs> yeah. Don't know about that. Um, so that, but that is a very impressive 19 for On Guard, um, which uh, currently makes her the top scorer in On Guard out of the uh, the 0.5 people. So that's yeah. good. That's very good. Um, very good. She's even beating Charles Martel in this category. Woo. So that's good. Uh, moving on to Voulez-vous. Voulez-vous. So let's first get into the really good cultural stuff, because we love that. So we're still in the midst of the 13th century golden age, uh, which Blanche Mm. really takes to a new level, uh, as we've said. Um, Not only was Notre Dame still being built, but it was also improved upon. Um, It won't be completed until 1328, um, 100 years after Blanche comes to power. Takes time to build a good cathedral, which then hundreds of years later gets burnt. Oh, well, I mean, uh, only the roof got burnt, you know. If you had to destroy one part of Notre Dame, I think the roof is... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but um, now they don't have trees like that anymore. Well, that roof only dates back to the the, the 1800s. Yeah, but they don't have trees that Because the roof anymore. collapsed. Basically, the roof has collapsed before is what I'm saying. 
Um, anyway, so Blanche made improvements also to the Basilica of Saint-Denis in the 1230s, which, as we know, very mm. important because uh, the burial place of the kings. Uh, she created more space to accommodate the royal tombs. And uh, she also introduced what's called the Rayonant style, uh, which is when you get those lovely big sort of rose windows that sort of fan out in a semicircle. Mm. So this is like an extension of the Gothic nice. style, but it's like making things even prettier. Ew. And there's an emphasis on very, very high ceilings that provide loads of light. Um, so it feels nice. like it's that feeling of like when you walk into a church and like it feels like you, you're in sort of like a heavenly space because of just how like tall it is. Um, uh, that's really something that's being introduced with the gothic improvements. I always feel that if I go into a mosque because they're white inside, so they feel a lot bigger in area. Yeah. Churches always feel a bit dark usually. Mm, but not in this period. They would have been brightly, brightly painted. Um, Bright and light. Yeah. Which coincides with her name. Blanche, yeah. Blinding. <laughs> she was like, I want a blinding effect when you look at those cathedrals. Yeah. I want you to come away being like, my eyes! <laughs> I want you to have to wear sunglasses to enter my church. Um, if you don't go blind, what's the point of making it? Yeah. So yeah, Blanche, she's interested in architecture. She, and she's, she, she, pull, she puts she's a dabbles. greater focus on the arts, um, as we've seen, particularly in the manuscripts that she produced um, to like instruct her children or like um, improve uh, monasteries in her in her kingdom she was also very into chivalry and uh, she helped start mm. to create the idea of la douce france sweet france or gentle france uh, which is oh. the uh, a cultural idea of france being the center of like the world's culture and like courtly etiquette nice she's really helping to start that we also cool. get a more of an emphasis on uh, the virgin mary's uh, veneration so, you know, creating a strong matriarchal mm. figure within the religion. And, uh, of course, she is the patron saint of Notre Dame, which is our, mm. the, the Cathedral of Our Lady, Notre Dame. And, of course, we have her composing a song dedicated to the Virgin yes. Mary, as we saw. She's bringing together, like, the piousness with the... Um, fun times. With the fun times, Exactly. Because you, She's you like, can why be, not have both? You can be holy and fun at the same time. This is something that yes. kings t- seem to struggle with sometimes. <laughs> um, and that we will see Louis the Ninth struggle with later in his reign when things become a bit less fun. Um, yeah, so uh, moving on to Blanche's governance, uh, we can partially credit Blanche with some of the good rulings that Louis the Ninth made while he was still alive. So this includes he uh, banned... The trial by ordeal, which is where you like put someone through like a walking over hot coals or something to prove their innocence. Um, They encoded the law of the presumption of innocence into law, which is a big thing. Hmm. So innocent before proving guilty. She brings Hmm. that or or she and Louis, I guess, um, bring that into law in France. Uh, She Hmm. expanded the royal bureaucracy. And she made significant steps to end the private local wars that had raged at the start of Louis' reign. Oh, and don't forget about, like, trying to be more sympathetic with the Jews. Yep, there's that as well. We finally have a have a less anti-Semitic ruler. Woo! Um, I'm not going to say she was, like... Wasn't, like... Was wasn't sleeping. anti-Semitic, yeah. but, but she... But she less so than the previous. Yes. Um, 
she punished people for trying to persecute the Jews at least, which is more than I can say for anyone else. So even though she maintained a very good relationship with the church, she wasn't afraid to punish wayward bishops and abbots when they got out of line. Um, Yeah. So yeah, she... She good. On the less good side, she empowered the Inquisition to pretty much wipe out religious difference in Southern France. Although, I mean, I guess this was in the name of a greater... Uh, you know, a desire for peace. Um, but yeah. it was a, it, 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 even though like she kind of peacefully ended the Albigensian crusade, it wasn't so peaceful if you were a Cathar on the ground, uh, getting brutally yeah. sort of, um, it's and killed. almost like an ethnic cleansing is what happens down cool. in Southern France. Yeah. Um, oh, it is mainly led by, uh, Raymond of Toulouse, um, who kind mm-hmm. of turns, against the Cathars in a big way because he's like, You're, you guys are the source of all my problems. Um, but like, the queen die. the queen giving more power to the Inquisition is a is a sad precedent. Uh, mm. uh, yeah. For the future. Yes, for the future. On the other hand, she sponsored uh, orders of monks and friars who engaged in scholarship and charitable work that enriched mm-hmm. France in general. Not only is she a big patron of the Cistercians, uh, who she joins uh, at the end of her life, mm. but the, the Cistercians, they're getting a bit dusty at this point. They're, they're kind of these very like cloistered, introverted clerics that don't go out and do much work in the community. So instead, Could Blanche... at the desk right in a way. Blanche also sponsors uh, new orders of, of monks, the Black Friars or Dominicans, oh. who are mainly focused on preaching, and the Grey Friars or Franciscans, who are mainly focused mm. on charity. And uh, these new orders uh, of friars... It's like, let's cover all the bases. Yes. They are collectively known as the mendicant orders. So when you hear the phrase mendicant order, that just means friars, who basically, instead of living in a monastery... Uh, they go around out and about. preaching and giving alms and and they rely on charity themselves, uh, or at least they're supposed to rely on charity themselves mm. to, um, you know, live. Word? to live. And they're actually mendicant monks in Japan, as, as I discovered. They, they, oh, cool. they wander around, um, or at least historically wander around um, living on charity. Preaching. Yeah, preaching. And this was in contrast to the big wealthy monasteries uh, of the Cluniac yeah. and Cistercian orders, um, who, which be- had become havens of debauchery by this point. Um, and there was a bit, there was a lot of conflict between the mendicants and the monasteries, mm. which did turn violent at times. It was the driving force behind a, the Paris University riots, uh, which which were Blanche's problem in 1229, start of her oh. regency, because of course. Uh, the university was a religiously run institution yeah. and the mendicants were sort of jostling for a place there alongside the the regular clergy. Yeah. And they ended up being expelled because they refused to swear yeah. obedience. Uh, then Blanche supported the mendicants saying, let them back yeah. in. And the violence led to the university getting dissolved and shut down for over two years oh. as it became unsafe for either parties to uh, attend. Um, Damn. Yeah. But we can see Blanche at least going in with good intentions, I guess. Yeah. She's trying to mediate both sides. Yeah. So after Blanche's death, we see a, a notable shift of Louis IX's policy, as we've said, to be less liberal and more austere. 
Um, in particular, mm. Louis brought back anti-Semitism after Blanche's death, mm. of course. But yeah, Blanche was looked back at as a very popular figure, um, even though she wasn't yeah. necessarily always popular. Yeah. During her first regency, she was often accused of being too imperious and high-handed, commanding people as if she herself was the king, the nerve. A woman having authority and power. What is I know. This? Also, during both her regencies, uh, she had conflicts with the populace at certain points. We've already seen the riots, and we've also, also mm. seen the Shepherd's Crusade as well. Yeah, um, sad to say. Even though with both conflicts, she was sympathetic to the people at at, at um, every turn. Yeah, and she always tried to resolve it non-violently. At first, she only had she only um, if she had only resorted to it at the last. Yeah, thing she only happened. sent the SWAT team in when she absolutely had to. Had no um, other choice. Yeah. However, um, we do get more emphasis in this period on royal authority over municipal authority. Mm. So previous kings like Louis VI and Louis VII had been big promoters of the independence of cities and their government councils from royal interference. But Blanche and Louis IX are more into getting involved meddling a bit too much sometimes. (laughs) They want more control over the city's taxes um, and over their legal systems. This can obviously have positive effects because... In many cases, the king or queen is stepping in to protect the yeah. the peasants or the or the um, the urban workers. Um, it's also quite authoritarian, I guess. Yeah, the lords aren't happy. It's a less sort of democratic thing. Not the lords, the uh, the the mayors, I guess, or the um, yeah the oh, burghers. Yeah. The burghers are unhappy. Yeah, the burghers. <laughs> I love the word burger. With their hamburgers. Yeah. Um, And uh, the, well, the nobles aren't necessarily happy either because there is also more focus on the king and the queen supporting the the church and the cities over Mm. the nobility as well, as we've seen. We've seen a trend of that happening. She wasn't always supporting the church, though. There's one instance where she brings the Cathedral of Notre Dame to court um, because the church is uh, levying an arbitrary tax on the peasant. Oh, she's like, I'm not having that. Yeah, and this is at the time they're already suffering austerity because of the crusade. So she's like, we don't need this. Right Blanche now. <laughs> threatens to send troops to enforce her will um, in the Damn. church lands. I think she died before anything could really happen. It's nice she doesn't have un like you know isn't by completely bias. Yeah, she does step in when the people are suffering, so that's good. Yeah. Um, even though she maybe does it in a very ham-fisted way, but you know sometimes you got to put your foot down. True, true. Can't always just be with words. Yeah. So yeah, but Blanche, she's a complicated lady. Um, hence why the Voulez-Vous round is so long. Because <laughs> uh, on the one hand, she's quite progressive and compassionate towards the peasants. But on the other yeah. hand, she's quite a, she's quite dictatorial. Um, yeah. And she often pushes things too far where other monarchs, particularly female monarchs, would have deferred to their male counsellors and been more moderate. Mm. I think. Also, maybe we should take into account her, her poor treatment of Queen Margaret. Uh, which is a bit unfortunate. Her her yeah, her, her daughter-in-law. She's she's not necessarily personally someone you might get along with. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what do we want to give for Volavir? Hi. The cultural stuff is really good. Yeah, I think like seven or eight. Yeah, I think so. I think we're we are in great reform territory, so that automatically I yeah. think gives me an eight. I'm tempted to go nine. Because of the, like the good treatment of the Jews and the peasants, True. like she's really True. the people that matter. She's treating well. Yeah, eight point five. Eight point five. 
Yeah, I think I might do 8.5 actually, because I'll take away point and a half for like the unrest and the uh, yeah. her being Stop. unpopular at, at certain times. Yeah. So she is one point below Eleanor of Aquitaine in Bolivia with a 17. Okay. So moving into Ulala. <gasps> Ulala. So Blanche was certainly considered a transgressive woman in her time, which I think should get, should get her some points. She's yes. definitely uh, uh, pushing some boundaries, even if, if it's for reasons that seem perfectly reasonable for us. It was definitely scandalous at the time. And as we've explored in Vulivu, she often became a scapegoat for the realm's problems in times of trouble. Because she's a woman. And this combined with the fact that she often spurned barons wanting royal officers led to a number of scurrilous things being said about her. So she became known in some circles as Dame Ursan, or Lady Hersant, uh, which is the name of a she-wolf from French folklore. <laughs> Take that as a compliment. The she-wolf is asso- associated with um, sexual license, often, in, uh, in, mm. in folklore. So we're seeing a bit of parallels to her descendant, uh, Isabella the she-wolf of France, who mm. actually became who became a region in England a hundred years later? Mm. So trends of women being called she wolves as a as a uh, sexist comment. Mm. Um, uh, and there were rumors of Blanche indeed uh, being sexually liberal in a way that was unacceptable. She apparently, according to these rumor mongers, took various lovers during her widowhood, uh, including the papal legate um, at one point, <laughs> which is quite scandalous, as well as Count Tybalt of Champagne, of course, uh, Mm. who wrote her love poetry and stuff like that. Although I don't think this ever got past the sort of courtly love sort of vibe. Um, uh, But there were rumours that Tybalt had poisoned Louis VIII in order to marry Blanche, um, despite (laughs) uh, being on the other side of the country at the time. because uh, back last episode, Tybalt had actually left Louis' campaign early. Um, he'd pulled out oh, during yeah. the siege of Avignon. He'd, he'd gone back to France, which actually ended up very good in the long term because Blanche had an ally close at hand who could help her. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it did mean that Tybalt had, had had no access to Louis VIII, so I don't think this is true. Uh, yeah. as, with, as with many rumours of poisoning, it's just sometimes mm. people die. This is the Middle Ages. Dysentery's a thing. Yeah. So whether he murdered the king or not, uh, as we've said, Tybalt uh, may have courted Blanche and wanted her to become his wife. Uh, mm. And he got the cheese thrown at his face uh, as a result. <laughs> but yeah, despite all of these rumours, Blanche's actual behaviour seems to have been very good in terms of the temptations of the flesh, uh, to put it, <laughs> put it in a medieval way. So yeah, uh, what do we want to give for Lala? Maybe like a f- four. Four. Why are you thinking higher or lower? I kind of want to give her more props for like her. True. Just her Being female. Just how like ravenous she is. <laughs> like she's <laughs> like how harsh she is, um, and she's really like defying True. expectations of her gender to be like all gentle and True. nice all the time and sweet. She's like nah. Yeah. Okay. I might go like five. She keeps threatening her children. <laughs> it's quite fun. Oh yeah, that's a um, good one. Yeah, I think a five as well, because it's like there's a there's a lot of um, reputational stuff that's very juicy, but no actual She'll stuff. Concrete, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go five. Yeah, it's 
So that is a 10 for Ulala. Not too bad. Very, very good. So moving on to Love You on Throne. I'm losing my voice now. <clears throat> Don't worry, nearly done. Love You on Throne. So the rain was very hard for me to calculate because I'm really bad at arithmetic. <laughs> but I managed to do it. So Blanche Whee! Castile um, has not one but two regencies. And we are going to count her reign as these regencies. So she reigned from the 8th of November. 12 years? Yes, 12 years overall. You're correct. So she ruled from the 8th of November, 1226, when Louis VIII died, to the 25th of April, 1234, when Louis IX's majority was declared. Um, So that's eight years and 17 days for the first reign. And then the second reign, we've got uh, from the 12th of August, 1248, um, when her four sons departed Paris for the Seventh Crusade. Until the 27th of November, 1252, when she died. So that's four years, three months, and 15 days. And as you said, a total of 12 years uh, and two months. Uh, So that Mm -hmm. is 2.3 points, which just puts in perspective how long some of these kings are reigning for. (laughs) (laughs) And then the children. Uh, Blanche, of course, had just the one husband, Louis VIII despite uh, Tybalt's mm. best, best efforts. Uh, so mm-hmm. you'd expect her to have the same children's score as him. Uh, but remember, two of them died. Oh, three of them died, actually, because there's Robert mm. dying in battle in Egypt. Oh, yeah. So she has three less children, so that's five children. I won't go through all mm. the children again, because we went through them last episode. Um, and we'll get into more detail about them in following episodes. They're going to do things. So that is uh, eight children. That's uh, sorry, no, so that is five children, I should say. So that is 8.4 points. And that okay. is a total of the on throne score of 10.7 out of 20. Woo. Uh, which is probably the most points that any regent is going to get for this round because regents wow. aren't terribly long. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. That is a total score of 74.25. 74 and a quarter. Yeah. And Good job. Putting that into perspective, she is eight points behind Eleanor of Aquitaine, so she didn't quite get up there. She's not the top scorer. But um, at 74, she is comparable to uh, Louis VI. She got slightly higher than Louis VI. Um, okay. And uh, Louis the Fat, I should say. Uh, she got higher than all of the Carolingians except Charlemagne. <laughs> 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 so, you know, she's done pretty, pretty, pretty well. So, with that being said... Where where shall we seat Blanche to watch the final VIP. Because, of VIP. course, she's not eligible for the guillotine or to participate in the tournament. But I think it's pretty much a no-brainer. VIP. gets to sit in the VIP. She's the most powerful queen regent, uh, arguably, that France ever has. Um, uh, hmm. Definitely in terms of, like, her legacy going forward. She really sets this strong precedent for women being yeah. in that top position. Yeah. Um, Shows really, that women can do it. We really haven't seen a female region in France since Gerberg of Saxony. Um, and even she was very unofficially the region. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that is the VIP box for okay. Blanche. She gets a lovely fanfare in, in the form of the outside Woo. drilling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I'm going to just type that in VIP box. Following on from her grandmother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> 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 
Which is interesting, though. You've gotten like two women in a row who are directly related. Yes. That's fun. Doing well. Um, our next point five e monarch, uh, who I'm thinking of doing. Yes. Although I'm not sure yet, because she's not technically the regent, but she is an important female monarch. Bigger. I'm thinking of doing a descendant of Tybalt, actually. Um, Ooh. Who is the Queen of Navarre who marries a King of France. But um, we will get to that when we get to that. Or maybe we can just wait for Spanish Arpoda to eventually cover her whenever they get to the Kings and Queens of Navarre. Um, we'll, we'll see. see. We shall see, indeed. So, that was Blanche of Castile. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yes, let us know what you think. Let us know what you think. Follow us on, on all the socials in the description. Yep. And, yeah. Eliza, yeah. Are you are you happy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. There's a spider near me. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, I'll let you go to deal with that. Yeah, I hate spiders. How big is the so spider? I'm like, that's why I keep looking a lot at the side. Yeah, you were looking very shifty at the end. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> no, a spider. How big is the spider? Oh, not big. It's just seeing it move closer and closer to me. Uh, I don't like. It's like Eliza, tiny, but I'm still like. You're an Australian. I believe in you. Uh, you can. Yeah, technically you, Japan doesn't have any poisonous spiders. You've seen worse monsters. Except for redbacks. Japan has redbacks. Yeah, but we have redbacks They too. came over. To Japan. Oh, they came. We we dumped a bunch of them. Yep. Apparently, they're hiding the air vents in Tokyo. Anyway. Okay. That is going to be. And oh, well, we should say it in Spanish. That's going to be adios from me. And au revoir from me. Lovely. <laughs> Want to do that? Lovely. Maybe we should switch up. We should switch up the goodbye a bit more. Maybe it's getting a bit strange. Sayonara. Or maybe, I, I I don't know, we need like a tagline at the end. Don't go on horses. <laughs> yes. Don't ride on Stay o- Stay safe and stay off horses. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that should be our new, that should be our new thing. Yes, Can that be our new safe. thing? Okay. Yes. Do you want to try it? <laughs> okay. Let's go. That's going to be au revoir from me. And stay off horses from me.